and using it to continue to increase the pace by which we follow God's lead is achieved through us recognizing the driving power that is found in spiritual momentum. To not find ourselves allowing pride to start to creep in on the backside of a, a spiritual momentum that drives us into the church, to not let pride slip in and blind us from the truth that it is only through God's power and God's providence, it is only through those things that we are able to see any of this happen. And this leads us to slowly, when we encounter this, it leads us to slowly believe when we lose sight of the power behind our momentum, it allows us to, to uh, slowly begin to believe that we have something to do with God. Maybe we are playing a part in this, apart from Christ. On chapter 8 of Nehemiah, we began to see, last week, if you were here, you began to see that momentum is building among the people in Jerusalem. They are finally getting it. They came from a ragtag group of people that Nehemiah was allowed to come back and cast a vision. They began to, from the ashes, raise up this wall. Well, momentum is being built because they have, they have completed the wall. The wall has been constructed. And now they have fallen in love with the Word of God. So there has been a spiritual reconstruction as well as a physical reconstruction. And they've fallen in love with the Word of God and they've seen His glory. And they have once again turned back to Him. And in chapter 8, we see the launch service of this new church plan in Jerusalem. I mean, Ezra is in just full rock star mode. He didn't have to convince people. 50,000 people are telling Ezra to get the book of the law and read it to us. I mean, he, he, he goes, and if you, if you were here or you've read that, he takes his place on the podium, and when he opens the book, he gets a standing ovation before he even begins to preach. The people stand in awe of the word of God that is being read to them. And they spend time worshiping God together. I'm sure there was still much to do in the city. This was a completed wall. But we know there were still things that had to be done within the city for the inhabitants. But yet they pause and they say, get the book of the law. And they, they read it and they stand. It was their first priority back in the cities to worship together as a church, as the people of God. This morning we're going to be looking at how through their prayers and worship that this momentum, now hear me, this momentum was not derailed by what we're going to look at this morning. This momentum that has been building by completing the wall was now leading them to a restoration of their hearts. And, how, and we're going to see how this momentum, as they pressed into God, actually led their hearts through momentum towards confession and repentance. Much like Israel, we will see, unfortunately, that by the end of the book of Nehemiah, they had already lost focus. Because Israel always lost those. And they had lost momentum. They turned their attention away from God. We see that towards the end of the book. So I believe there is a word in this for us this morning. There is a word for us to grasp this morning about the power of momentum pushing us towards a repentant heart and a right perspective of God in us. So we get to chapter 9. You can join me this morning in Nehemiah 9. We get to chapter 9, it's a chapter primarily centered on the Israelites repenting before God as they contrast their faithlessness 
over, over time with the consistent faithfulness of God. We're going to read it in just a moment and see this. Now, I think as a culture, we're not immune from this. We do a poor job of seeing the power and the majesty of God. We do a poor job of seeing just how everlasting God is and how so far apart we are separated by, from Him in character and action, but yet how intimately He has chosen through His power to fellowship with His brothers, with His sons and daughters. We're so quickly to forget His faithfulness like the Israelites, to forget His goodness like the Israelites, to forget that He is a just God, constantly pours, pours out His love on us when truly, truly can come to a place of forgetting that. We're going to see this morning that a true unveiling of the majesty of God will naturally lead this people to repentance. Now, our goal in life is not to redefine who God is. Our goal in seeking after God is for Him to reveal Himself to us, through His Word to us, and for this revelation to lead us to repentance. You think about the Isaiah. When Isaiah stood in his vision before the presence of God, Isaiah said, Woe is me, I cry out a man of unclean lips. Reflecting the power and majesty of God led him to that. So this morning, we want to have a right picture of what repentance is. The repentance can best be defined as a, as a return to God. We want to see the difference between this guilt or, or something that is not a, a sustainable motivation. I want us to see what repentance really is this morning. And I want us to, to, to then be led to a place where we accept His mercy and grace in our life and experience all the repentance of His grace. So I want us to read in this entirety, chapter 9. I want us to see what's taking place here, and then we'll kind of break that down through it. So let's go. Nehemiah 9, verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sin and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadiel, Shadoniah, Uni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani. And they cried with loud words to the Lord their God. And then the, then the Levites enlisted other group of Levites. And they said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Verse 6. You are the Lord. You belong. Listen to the momentum here. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord. The God who chose Abram and brought him out of Europe of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Verse 9. And you saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea. And you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, 
you led them in one day by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath. You commanded them commandments and statutes and the law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread for heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land they had sworn to give, that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. What a contrast. What a contrast from the faithless nature of God and in one verse it derails because their fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey the commandments of the faithful God. Verse 17. They refused to obey were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. There was a pillar of cloud to lead them in the way, and did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sahon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land you had told their fathers to hear and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns that were already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. And so they ate, and they were filled, and became fat, and delighted themselves in their great goodness. But look, verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient, and they rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, he gave them into the hands of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does, then he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give you. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the people. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, 
our fathers and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted with you. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, momentum was going here. He says, you give great goodness, even in the midst of that, they didn't know that. And the large and rich land that you set before him, they did not serve him or turn from their wicked words. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good for the gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings who you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document of the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Wow. What a great narrative. You see the constant ebb and flow of the faithfulness of God contrasted with the faithlessness of His people. And how in the midst of their faithlessness, it appeared as if God poured out even more grace to them. What a great God. What a good and faithful God to His people. So you see, as we walk through this text, this whole story of Israel is painted. And we look at verse 1, they are fasting. They have on sackcloth. This is a bad day for them. This was not a casual, kind of bummed out day, so we're going to lie around our PJs kind of day. This is a remorse. This is a putting on sackcloth in absolute repentance before God. They were fasting. They were focusing solely on God. They had earth on their heads. And so what we find here is actually a continuation of what began in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2, that Bobby shared about last week. But this time of year, because the first day of the seventh month was a holy day, they were told not to weep that day in chapter 8, verse 2. They postponed this weeping, and they went forward with the festival of the seventh month. So this day was the first day of the holy festival of the trumpets. Began the festival season here. Without the last until the tenth day, on the tenth day of the seventh month would be the day of atonement. That's where they celebrate the day of atonement. And on the fifteenth day of this month would be the festival of booths, where they as a people would celebrate and remember the faithfulness of God as they were wanderers, literally living in booths or tents. So as they went about, they would recognize the faithfulness of God, so they reflected on that. And so then we get to the twenty-fourth day of the month. So we're out of the faithful uh, the festival celebration. And that's what we pick up in Nehemiah 9. Verse 1. So picture this. Sackcloth, grumbling, dirt on their head, being a symbol of their anguish before God. And then they, we see in verse 2, that they had distanced themselves from the foreigners in the land. They had completely distanced themselves for the purpose of purification. They had, they had gone off together and received the face of God. And so they would read the Bible for about three hours, and then they were worshiping and asking for forgiveness for about three hours. Quarter part of the day, second quarter part of the day. But look what they did. Verse 6, they worshiped God in creation. They worshiped God for his providence in choosing Abraham and coming into a covenant relationship with Abraham. They worshiped him for his deliverance from Pharaoh, how he literally made a way that was impassable so that they may be rescued. They talk about how God guided them by cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. He talked about giving, giving the Ten Commandments for them to follow, and that God provided for them 
They talked about the fall and how they worshipped false gods. And then God still met their needs despite their strength. They talked about the period of kingship where they were not supposed to be a king with a king. But they wanted a king. So God gave them a king. And we see how it did not pan out. We see in verse 26 another part of the fall. They have fallen away again. And we just continue to see them reflecting on the goodness of God. And then we get to verse 32. And repentance is truly happening through this book. And I think what we see here, as we look at repentance, I think this morning I want us to draw off again four parts of repentance, four components of repentance that I think we see from their attitude of repentance that was fueled by momentum and leadership of the Holy Spirit, and how they get to this place where they truly repent. So I want us to see these things together. First of all, in verses 5 through 6, we see the worship of God. You see the foundation and the beginning of their repentance was a, was a proper view of God, a worship of God. It didn't begin with guilt. It didn't begin with terrible circumstances. It didn't begin with, although they were in both of those, but it began with a proper view of God, the worship of God. Look what they find here. See, first of all, in verse 5, they, they said that he is the everlasting God. So their worship led them to a viewpoint of God that he is the everlasting God. He has no influence. God is not a geometry problem or an algebra or an equation. He cannot be solved. He is infinite. He is everlasting. E equals MC squared is the formula that the mass of the body is a measure of its energy concept. Find by Einstein who happened to have a birthday yesterday, right? That can be solved. God is everlasting. He cannot. Now, his name is higher than anything we can say to describe him. He is a incredible God, awesome God, that we cannot quite wrap our minds around. This is what he says, the prophet Isaiah says in verse 40, chapter 40, verse 28. He says, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He is an everlasting God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning point and the ending point. He has always existed and was not created, but has always been. He has no start and he has no finish. He has always been. And, and, and he spoke creation into existence out of nothingness. See that in Genesis 1 and 2? He was. He is everlasting. And this is a proper starting point for a proper repentance is seeing the contrast with the greatness of the everlasting God. They also went, went further. Not only was he everlasting, they see in the first part of verse 6, that he has no rivals. He has no rivals. Not only is God everlasting, but he has revealed himself as the one true God. God reveals himself in this. He says, Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 through 6, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. He said, I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no God. They go on to say that not only is he, not does he have no rivals, but he is creator. Talked about that a moment ago. 
see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 that Jesus came, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, listen, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So God is creator, he is unchanging, he has always been in his nature. Then they also go on the end part of chapter verse 6, and they say that not only is he the God who, who, who is the creator, but he is the sustainer. He sustains this. In Colossians chapter 1, 17, it, it continues. It says that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He holds everything in place. What a powerful and mighty God. But then they move their repentance towards God begins with this recognition of who he is, but then they begin to reflect on God's faithfulness as we look at the history of Israel and display the divine. God was so good to them, despite their rebellion. God was steady and consistent, despite their choices and actions. But as we see with the Israelites, their choices led them far from God, but his love for them never changed. That's a word for us. I don't know where you're at with all the Christ. I don't want this just to be a history lesson. I want you to implant yourself into the God who's inspired word of you. And I think we learn a timeless truth from this. That is echoed throughout the Word of God from the, from the Old Testament forward. And that is that for you, many of you here may be running from Him. You're running so far away from God because you don't realize His faithfulness. For you today, God is calling you to return to Him because He is faithful. Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, the son who had wandered very far away from his father. As the son is tending pigs and wishing he could eat what he was feeding them, he says, You know what? I can go home to my father. And being home with my father, I could at least be a hired man. And that's the way many of us return to God, is that we want to crawl back to maybe he'll accept us slightly. But in that story, the prodigal son is the son is a far distance away, and the father sees him, and the father runs to him. And the father puts a ring on his finger, and puts a robe around his back. And he says, kill the fat and calf, we're going to have a party, because the son of mine who's lost is now found. That's the nature of God. He is unchanging. God's nature does not change. So as we see projected from the Old Testament forward into the New Testament, even through the parables of Jesus, we see that God is a faithful God who loves His children. And He's calling you to see that, first of all, we, the God we serve loves us unconditionally. He waits for us in anticipation. He's eager for us to return. You see that? He does not need us, but He desires fellowship with us. Then we also see that he welcomes us back as children and not slaves. For some of you, you may have messed up your life so bad. You may have wandered so far from God that you would be completely satisfied and expect him to treat you as a servant as we call back to him. And he says, no. He says, you're my son. You're my daughter. God is a faithful God. And we see that as they continue in their confession. Then find third part of repentance that we see that they move towards is inward confession. There's a worship of God. There's a reflection on his faithfulness. 
So we get a problem view of God, we get a problem view of His grace and mercy, and then we push through to inward confession. Verse 32 through 37, they inwardly get rid of themselves and recognize that they were the cause of their problem. It's time that, that they stop blaming God for everything. And as we look at confession in our life, I believe it is time that we confess the sin in our heart that is truly keeping us from, from being the person God is molding us to be. And it's needs to happen. Momentum leads to that. It's time to stop allowing Christian liberty to be taken too far in our lives to where it jades us and creates a chasm between us and God. Because repentance is not just about praying a prayer and getting a free pass until we mess up again. It is a turning back to God. It is a turning from something back to something else, which in our case repentance is God. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says this. Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you Yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on his riches and on his kindness, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to? The nature of God is what leads us to repentance. So there was a, there came to a place of inward confession. And God, before I look around me and begin to critique and, 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 and figure out what's wrong with everyone else, I look inwardly and I see that God is not others' fault. At the core of who I am, there is a sin beneath the sin where I have fallen into a mistruth about you. And at that place, we need to confess. To confess before God. But then it leads to a the ending of chapter 9 and ends with an outward action. Because see, repentance is a turn. So they, they confess, but then look what happened in verse 38. They make a covenant. They say, because of who you are and what your faithfulness and, and mercy and, and goodness have been to us, and because of how we have been, how we have been so faithless to you, because we recognize when this collision occurs between those two things, we confess inwardly, and we're going to outwardly make a change. We're covenanting with you that we're going to walk differently. They renew their commitment to God. They move forward with Him. For many of you, you have not come to that place where you have moved beyond confession to moving forward. Your history and your past is still defining your future. Rather than being defined by the righteousness of Christ, which covers the multitude of our sins, all of our sins, instead of living out of that truth, we are still hanging on to an anchor of our past sins, defining our future. We need to see this morning that our future has been sealed through the blood of Jesus. That's the beauty of grace, is that when we return to Him, just like He told the Israelites, if you will return to me, I will gather you back together, and he blesses them. The same truth echoes through the New Testament covenant through Jesus. Where Jesus says, if you would just return to me, return to me, and God will be faithful. He has never let down his path of covenant. 
And thank goodness his covenant is not based on our action. He is a faithful covenant keeping God. So they came to a place where they had this outward action in their repentance. But then we move to chapter 10. I'm not going to read this whole chapter, but I, I feel like we need to see that this, this God's word filled this momentum which led to repentance. This repentance led to a covenant which was a right walking with God, a commitment to Him. And I want to just kind of, let me give you an overview of chapter 10 of what it looked like when the Word of God shaped them into a repentant heart and then what their commitment was, what they would say that because of our repentance to you, this is what our action is going to look like. And I think we see some truths from this this morning. So from chapter 9, we see this repentance that, that leads to a renewed commitment to God. And I want us to see how we use this repentance we are called to as a catalyst to covenant with God, to move forward, to gain momentum, and to continue to allow the Spirit to move through us. A catalyst is a change in the rate of a chemical reaction due to the participation of catalyst. That's the definition. But there are two types of catalysts. There is a positive catalyst or a promoter. And then there is a negative catalyst or an inhibitor or either a catalytic poison. In our lives, when we are faced with the reality of who we truly are contrasted with God, we have a choice. We can seek repentance, which is a positive catalyst that speeds up or promotes our forward progression in our walk with God, or we can choose to not seek repentance in our life, a negative catalyst, and it becomes a poison in our life. The further and further we fall out of fellowship with God. The Israelites here face a crossroad. They chose to see their conditions repent and then catalyst propelled them to allow God to begin to change all aspects of their life. So, so this morning, as we find ourselves in this, this desire to turn back to God, I want us to look at four things real briefly that I see from chapter 10. That it happen when we make a covenant with God to follow His ways. This is spoken clearly through the covenant that they made at this moment, but again, it's resonated and backed up all throughout Testament, the New Testament. So I believe we can see this not only as descriptive, but we can see it as a very prescriptive components of following after God and covenant. So the first 27 verses is basically a, a corporate response to God. It lists a lot of names and who signed the covenant and sealed it and, 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 and who all was a part of that. They actually signed the names there. Nehemiah, I, I think, find it interesting to note that it began with Nehemiah and the governors and continued all the way down to verse 28 to the seniors, the servants, and the family members. So Nehemiah never asked anyone to do anything he wasn't willing really to but they corporately respond to God. And then we see from their covenants and things that are very relevant today. Look at verse 28. The rest of the people, and the priests, and the Levites, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. Verse 29. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. And to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and His rules and His statutes. First of all, we walk in a covenant relationship with God, fueled from our repentant heart. We're going to be, first of all, we're going to live under the authority of God's Word. I could spend weeks on this particular point, but I'll spend minutes. We must live under the authority of God's Word. You see the repentance? Does not just give you a reset so that you can then live the way you like to live. Repentance and returning to God means that God 
I have tried this way. I'm repenting, and I want to sit under the authority of your word in my life. Look what they said they, they did. They not only entered into a oath to walk in God's law, but they entered into a curse. They were willing to, to make an oath to follow His law, but also were willing to accept the curse that might come from disobeying His truth. Their commitment was to follow the commandments of the Lord. In essence, they were laying aside all other guides for their moral compass, except for the testing of all things by the Word of God. In our lives, we often try and attempt in our culture to redefine the moral compass. And unfortunately, that can leak over into our churches and families. We change the compass for what will determine the right way to go at life. Maybe we chalk it up to things that are dated. That's not relevant to today's world. Maybe we say, well, God, maybe really didn't mean that when he said that. We're smarter than all the people that have gone before us. We figured out this is really in essence what is being said. We live in a culture that wants to convince not only the world, but the church itself, that we can live as we desire. That God is gracious and merciful, which he is. But because of that, we, 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 we see the contrast with Paul's teaching. When they, when they would ask him, would he continue to sin so grace may abound? And he said, no, no way. Can you possibly continue to sin if you can see and experience such grace? But the world tries to influence us in that, creeping into our church and causing a paradigm shift in the interpretation of God's word and gospel, which is quite honestly becoming a twist in the truth according to God's word. There's a phrase that we must know. It's a Latin phrase called Sola Scriptura. The Latin phrase, which was birthed out of the Reformation, which is composed of two words, Sola, being alone, and then Scriptura, the Word. The Word alone. The Word alone. That is the authority in our life. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good word. Psalm 119, 11. The word of God keeps us from sin. He says, Your word I've hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Psalm chapter 1 is an entire book that says there is life to those who delight in God's word. Psalm 119, 105 says that the word directs us. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So in essence, Whatever advice, opinions, and influences we receive from friends, opinions of culture, life experiences must be tested by Scripture. And ultimately, what Scripture says will make the final determination in life. This is a non-negotiable according to God's Word. So this morning, I want to ask you, as you repent, are you willing to obey Scripture? Are you willing to submit your life to the authority of God's Word? And not just the parts that we just really like. Love your neighbors, yes. Feed the poor, yes and yes. Delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Amen. Practicing sexual purity, both before and outside of marriage. Do not gossip. Tame your tongue. A realization that there is a real hell. And people will really go there apart from God's grace and receive. Love my enemies. In our anger, do not sin. To see the truth that wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and small is the gate that leads to life and to 
Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. Love the Lord with all your heart and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Pray without ceasing. Committing to the authority of God's word will mean that all scriptures will dictate all areas of your life. As you come back to God with a heart, you submit your life to the authority of God's word. There's a second thing we see from this covenant, and that's the second that we will form godly relationships and lead our families. Look at verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now this is not saying that they wouldn't allow their kids to marry people of another race or of another nationality and nothing to do with this. This had everything to do with the pagan cultures outside of their people. Remember, they were being the people that were being purified. And so as a pure people, they were making a commitment before God that they would, they would allow their relationships and lead their families towards purity. In essence, they were saying, we will not let our daughters marry non-Christians. We will not let our sons marry non-Christians. That's just the way it's going to be. You know, we want spiritual purity. Now, let me pause here for just a moment. And I don't know about pausing time. Let me just, for just a second. This truth found here in this covenant between Israel and God concerning spiritual purity, purity and relationships is a truth that is backed up and carried through the entirety of God's Word. So we can see it also as prescriptive. It is describing the very specific nature of their covenant, but prescriptively it is very much telling us a theme that is carried all throughout God's Word. This theme that I want to challenge you with briefly this morning in the relationship. As they look at a people, they want to be pure in the relationships on this earth. We see that as the nature of God for, for relationships. He gave Eve to Adam for relationship. It was pure in its origin. It was to glorify God. So what we learn from this, what we see, we take, take a, an overview of God's word. You know, for those of you who are single, if I could just give you a very practical word this morning. You know, missionary dating is not good. And it's not a thing. God's Word teaches us do not be yoked together with unbelievers. We see this echo in your testament as we do in Nehemiah. You may say, well, man, you don't understand. I feel reliable coming over me every time she walks in the room. I'm going to change her. And I got this thing. I'm going to change her. What are you The truth is, she will change you. Some of you ladies will say, well, he, he believes in God. He just isn't very vocal about it. Well, James says that demons believe in God. You're not going to marry one of them. You want a man as a leader for you. You must make a vow that before you even say yes to coffee or to a movie, that you will commit to vow that you will not be an equally joke because of your covenant relationship with God. For the ladies of the room, you need a man who will lead you spiritually. And this is not determined solely on if they will do a couple of bottles for Look at the fruit of their lives. Do they love Jesus? Are they sold out to Jesus? And this one may hurt, but do they adore God more than they adore you? This can leak over into our marriage relationship. 
We must be careful that we do not allow our earthly relationships to be the golden cow that we bow down before and worship while God is on the Lord. If you make your partner in a relationship, your idol will not work and will fail. Parents, we vow to make sure that our children are raised to love and follow Jesus with their lives. And that there is no way in the world that you would hand them off to anyone who didn't love God. You teach them to honor their parents. And not just because it makes home life easier. You choose to teach them to honor him because the Bible says to them. In our marriages, we, we allow our intimacy to be driven by the intimacy of that spiritual level that we have. We are both pursuing God in relationship. This is what it means to, 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 to dedicate purity into our relationships. So we see very briefly, as I can cover that for much more time. I have this one. We will form godly relationships and we have families. That's the part of repenting and finding ourselves walking in covenant with God. Here's the third thing we see, verse 31. And that is that we honor and respect biblical Sabbath. Look at verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on the holiday. And we will forego the promise of the seventh year and the exaction of every day. So we see here that a lot of time we get into work that they need by Sabbath here. But we were, they, they were Sabbath. The Sabbath will be a component of our law of Christ. We honor and respect the biblical Sabbath. Now, they had laws that said they could not sell goods on Sunday. For us, I just want to, just, in a nutshell, say, are you truly Sabbathing in God? This is not being lying on the couch all day Sunday watching football. That's physical rest. A true Sabbath that God intends for us is that we find our rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That we pause to say, no matter what's happening and no matter what I've done, I rest in knowing that Christ is enough for me. We Sabbath in that truth. And then finally, we see at the very end of those verses, verses 31 through 39, that there was a commitment for them to practice biblical stewardship. This section has a lot to do with the temple tax, which was paying for the working of the temple. People also agreed to land to rest every seven years as a chance to allow the land to recharge, allow the poor to catch up. And from this, I think we see that God is calling us to biblical stewardship. I just ask you your time. Are you stewarding your time well for God? Are you stewarding your finances well for God? Or are you saying, what is the least amount I can give to be coaching your church? What is the, what's the least amount that I can keep? How much can I give for God's glory to be advanced? How much time can I give? How much of our resources can we give so that God's name is advanced? He calls us at the end there. And we're going to see uh, in, in just a bit, we'll see that, that the people of, of Israel, as I told you in 12, verse chapter 12, they, they kind of lay out the dedication of the wall and in 13, Nehemiah has been additional reforms. Because once again, the people had come in. Knowing this, they had still come in and were selling goods on the Sabbath. You had to correct them. They pointed them again to the, to the goodness of God and His faithfulness. So this morning, Nehemiah completes this story by kind of lining out what happened in continuation towards the end. And unfortunately, again, we see unfaithfulness in the and that will happen in our life. But this morning, I want us to end where we begin. Does the goodness of God in His work, does it lead you to repentance and walk in faith to or does, when God is good and pours out His goodness on us, does it allow us to kind of 
feel like we can disconnect from you. I'll need you so much right now. And then our walls come crashing down and what do we do? God, you're faithful. I need you. We find our momentum when God is allowing sweet things to happen in our life. Do we allow that to feel us where it leads us to a pinned heart and say, God, you're so great and I'm so unfaithful and I'm so unworthy. God, you are so You are so good. My prayer this morning is that as a church family, we will eagerly seek right standing with God, beg Him to continue to move in us, through us, through His glory, and that we will never lose sight of the catalyst that we need to know. It's the Spirit of God working in us. We will never allow pride to define well up inside us to look around and go, wow, God, you really did something really neat. And we kind of got this. And we always press in Him. Against goodness, kindness, and goodness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.